0: Four years ago, Ella was eight years old. She's quizzing my boys on the capitals of the United States. Heather and I are eavesdropping. And she asked, what is the capital of Alabama? Seth, who was four at the time, with all sincerity, said, the capital of Alabama is the Crimson Tide. We haven't corrected him as of yet. Because we are concerned about his education. You know, some questions in life, if you get them wrong, they're inconsequential. In fact, they even may be humorous. All right? But there are certain life questions, if you get them wrong, disaster. Tragedy. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. C. S. Lewis. argues that are, there are essentially three life questions that we have to ask and answer. And to use uh, an analogy of ships at sea, he said that when ships are leaving port, the sailors have to ask three questions. first question is this. How do you keep the ships from bumping into one another? In other words, that's an issue of Social ethics. How do we get along with one another? The second question is how do you keep the ships seaworthy? That's an issue of personal ethics, character, personal character. But the third question, he says, is the most vital. And that is what is the ship's purpose? What is the ship's mission? What is the ship's destination? It's that last question that's ultimate. All right? If you get that question wrong, it doesn't matter if you get the first two questions right because it'll ultimately lead to ruin. And it's this last question that John is seeking to answer in his gospel. He tells us why he writes. I love it when the writer just lays it out there. John 20, verse 31, he says, This is the reason I'm writing that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in His name. So every narrative, every story in John has that as its purpose. It's so that you would believe. And so for the unbeliever, John is writing everything in his gospel so that you would believe and have life. And for those of you that have already believed, He is writing so that your faith would be strengthened and enjoy that life that is yours in Jesus Christ. And to help us accomplish this, John gives us seven miracles in his gospel. Seven, what he calls, signs. Sign miracles. What is a sign? It, it points beyond itself. It's an index finger. It's a, it, it, a signpost. The miracle is not what's ultimate; it's pointing us to something that's ultimate. These miracles speak something of the nature of what Jesus Christ will accomplish for us. The first sign miracles in John two, when he turns the water into wine, and then he uh, heals this official son, and then he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, and then in John six, he turns uh, the fish and loaves, he feeds the 5,000 with the fishes and the loaves and then he walks on water and then he restores the sight of a blind man. All of those are signs that point beyond themselves to something more ultimate. The seventh and final sign is what we see in John chapter 11. And again, these signs have as their purpose to work faith in us. A faith that will dictate the purpose, the mission of our lives and determine our eternal destiny. A lot's at stake with these signs. And that brings us to this seventh and final sign, the ultimate love sign, if you will. But as we'll see, it's not just a sign that demonstrates Jesus' love. Everything in this narrative reflects the heart of Jesus, His love. Everything in this story In fact, and ironically, we see Jesus demonstrate His love in verses 1 to 16 by delay. By delay. Notice in verse 1, Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, notice in chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. And in chapter 1, verse 28, that tells us he is in a place called Bethany at the time, but not Bethany of Judea. He's in Bethany of Galilee. And so when he catches word here about the sickness, he's 110 miles away. The distance between Bethany of Galilee and the Bethany of Judea is 110 miles, about a three or four day walk. I love the way he describes. Notice in verse 2 it says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That's speaking of the account we read about in Luke. John is assuming the reader knew about that account. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. He whom you love. Do you realize, if you're a believer here today, the most important thing about you is not that you love Jesus perfectly. Because you don't. You do not love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's why you need Jesus. That's why we needed the gospel when we were initially saved, and that's why we need the gospel every day of our lives. We do not love Jesus perfectly, but Jesus does love us perfectly. And so it's, it's a very common thing to see in John that we are described not as those who love Jesus, but as those whom Jesus loves And when Jesus' love captures us, the fruit of that is that we begin to love Him. Okay? Well, notice in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, that is, that Lazarus is sick, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so, John has established that Jesus loves Lazarus, and that Lazarus' illness has as its end, that is its goal, the glory of God in the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, everything that glorifies the Son benefits you, even if you don't feel it or see it at the time. Everything that glorifies the Son benefits you. Now note, what we read in verse 5 and 6 is quite ironic to us. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, we expect in the next line, in light of the fact that He loves Mary and Martha and the fact that He loves Lazarus, that He's going to take off to Bethany immediately. That's what we're expecting to read. Exactly. But notice in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus is ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What kind of logic is this? Jesus loves Lazarus, and so when he hears that he's sick, he stays where he is for two days. I mean, if, you, if you're honest, that's counterintuitive to the way we would do things. Imagine as a pastor, I hear someone is, is really sick. And as a result, I just stay where I am instead of going and doing something about that. Not only that, his delay required Mary and Martha to wait. All right? All right? So this is counterintuitive, and it's not the way we like to think about our Lord's ways. We don't like waiting. We don't like it a bit. And that's why, in fact, the psalmist will say, Be strong, let your heart take courage, wait, I say, on the Lord. That one verse tells us it takes strength and courage to wait on the Lord. But the surprise isn't over. Notice in verse 7, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea. Now, Judea is in the south, and it has become an increasingly hostile place for Jesus. Most recently, in chapter 10, verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That's when he went to Galilee. That's when they moved north, across the Jordan, to Galilee, because it's gotten hot in the kitchen uh, in Judea. And the disciples are not pleased that he's going back to Judea because he faces greater threats there in Judea than he does in the north. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Again, this shows the disciples are motivated by purely human concerns, but aren't we like that? I know as I read that, I can resonate with the disciples. We often think that our Lord should be doing things differently than the way He does them. Without realizing that His wisdom is infinite. Our wisdom is so finite, and even our finite wisdom is fallen wisdom. But He has infinite wisdom. And His wisdom, His will that is birthed by His wisdom is the exact thing you would do if you had His wisdom. Everything He does is birthed by infinite wisdom. And so Jesus replies with a parable. Notice verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does he mean by that? Jesus is saying that by returning to Judea, he's doing the will of God. That's what he means by walking in the light. And the fact that Jesus always walks in the light, the Son of God, our mediator, the fact that he always walks in the light and does the will of God is our hope. He never makes a mistake even if you don't feel it or see it at the moment. The fact that Jesus, the Son of God, walks in the light doing the will of God is our hope. And there's no exception here. Not to do the will of God is to walk at night. That's the metaphor there. Now notice, at the end of two days, Jesus says, verse 11, after saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's, a, he's waited two days. He's heard that he's sick. And now, after two days, he's ready to go awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And I love this language of being awakened. Because for the believer, death is not ultimate. We have to, we have to understand that. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he, was, he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, and I think here, Thomas is being sarcastic in light of the fact that he has this doubting tendency about him. He said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Probably some sarcasm there. So we see Jesus is demonstrating his love by delay. In the second part of this passage, we see he demonstrates his love by directing all the attention to himself. Notice verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So... Jesus and the disciples have walked 110 miles, which would have taken three to four days. So when he receives news that Lazarus is sick, he waits two days and decides they will leave once they hear that Lazarus is dead. Why delay? Why delay? That's the question. Have you ever asked God that question? Why why are you making me wait? Why are you delaying? That's a question all of us have asked. But recognize this. If Jesus had left, as soon as they heard the report, Lazarus still would have been dead when he got there. He would have been dead. In that case, of course, Lazarus would have been dead only perhaps two days. And yet, dead is dead. And it would relieve Mary and Martha of two days of suffering. So why the wait? Why is John emphasizing it was the love Jesus had for them that he delays? Well, the delay has something to do with something that is strange to us. Would have been, but would have been very, very um, under easily understood to those in the first century. In fact, it would have been understood by those in the West until the last 100, 150 years. And it had to do with a superstition. A superstition that when you die, your spirit hovers over your body for three days with the possibility of recitation, being re- revived. Okay? And so that was a superstition. In fact, I just finished reading George Washington's biography, and and the day that he died, the morning of his death, he told his servants, don't bury me for three days. And the author, Ron Chernow, of the book says, in that day, um, there was this great fear of being buried too soon. And the reason is this. There was this superstition... That if you die, your your spirit would hover over you and even possibly revive you up to three days. But after three days, after that point, resuscitation is not possible. Death is judged irreversible. Now, Jesus obviously did not believe that superstition. All right? Because it's nonsense. But if Jesus had arrived two days earlier, and brought Lazarus back from the grave, there would have been those who said, Ah, I know how that works. I know how that works. He was resuscitated. His spirit revived him. So by his delay, Jesus demonstrates his love for Mary and Martha, and for all the witnesses there, and for Lazarus, by doing something that had no human explanation. This man's been dead for four days and all of a sudden he's going to be coming walking out of that tomb. There's only one explanation for that. And that is there's something unique about Jesus. Of course, Mary Martha didn't know this at the time. That's the way God works. His ways are surprising. So there's an infinitely wise purpose behind your waiting today. Let me just tell you that there's an implication here that the ways of God are infinitely wiser than your ways. Some of you are waiting right now and you cannot make sense of what God is doing. You don't have to make sense of it. His ways are birthed in infinite wisdom. They did not know what He was doing, but He was doing something that was going to glorify Himself through His Son, and in so doing, it was going to benefit them. Notice verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here... My brother would not have died. This is likely not a rebuke. It's likely just a lament that is birthed by the anguish in her heart, realizing that it could have been otherwise. And then it's almost as if Martha overhears herself as she's speaking to Jesus. And so she adds in verse 22, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Well, Mary, or Martha, is Orthodox. And Orthodox Jews believed in a future resurrection from the grave. What they did not understand was that this resurrection was going to come in two stages. That the Messiah would be raised in space and time, and then there would be an overlap between His resurrection and the future resurrection of the believer, okay? But she is orthodox, and you see this in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So that gives you a picture of what the Jews believed in that day. There's a last day coming, and in that last day, the people of God will be raised. Of course, we recognize that with the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that that last day begins in one person. And so the last day is inaugurated in the person of Jesus. It will be consummated when He returns and all of our bodies are raised from the grave. She didn't understand that. Well, notice in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you know that there's seven times in the Gospels Jesus said... Or seven times in John, Jesus says, I am. I am the true vine. I am the light. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. Seven times. What is this I am language? Well, it's quite radical and scandalous unless he's the Son of God. Because all the way back in Exodus 3, the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible encountered God at the burning bush. And he asks this God he encounters, What is your name? And this God of the burning bush says, I am. I am. That's my name. And so Jesus, by using the language of I am, before Abraham was, I am. John 8. And that's where they picked up stones to stone him because they understood something very important at that point. He's claiming to be God. And he says here, I am the resurrection and the life. What's amazing is that Jesus focuses his, or the attention here away from this generalized belief in a future resurrection on the last day and he directs the attention towards himself. He is saying to Mary and Martha, he's saying to you, sitting here today by the providence of God, he is saying I want you to believe something more than that. I want you to believe I am the resurrection, I am the life. Now what does he mean? Jesus is making two claims that are very connected. Death isn't the final word. Now if you're sitting here healthy today and your family's healthy, that may not stir you. But it should. Because life is so short. And then we die. And so if you haven't come to terms with the fact that Jesus is saying death isn't the final word for those who would believe, you need to come to terms with that this morning. Death isn't the final word. And the second point he's making there, Jesus gives eternal life. I am the life. Only Jesus can give eternal life for those who believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have, what? Eternal life. What did He say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is Jesus alone. You say, well, that's quite bigoted. That's quite narrow-minded to say that. All truth is narrow. Let's get over it. Doesn't mean we're narrow minded. You don't call a mathematician narrow minded by saying when that person says 2 plus 2 equals 4. Because you know 2 plus 2 does not equal 5. Jesus is claiming to have the exclusive rights on resurrection and life. And the reason he has these exclusive rights is he is the only God, he is I am. There is only one God. Every other God is a false God. So only this God can offer you victory over death, resurrection life. That's what he's telling her. And so Jesus is encouraging Martha that not only is there a final resurrection, there's only one who can provide it. And then he asks the question of the ages. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This week I was with a student who grew up in Rome, Italy as a missionary child. And I asked him about his parents and he said, My dad was a stoned hippie until he was 36 years old. I said, And he ended up being a missionary in Rome? He said, Yes. He tried Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism. And then one day, a deacon in a little church in Indiana invited him to his house. And he said, he went. And the guy just opened up the Bible and read the gospel to him. That Jesus saved sinners. And there's no sin beyond the grace of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Jesus took the judgment for sinners. Jesus was raised from the grave for sinners. And he looked at this man, this stoned hippie, 36 years old, and he said, do you believe this? The same question that Jesus asked Mary and Martha today. Do you believe this? And he said his dad was hit between the eyes by the Holy Spirit. And he was confronted with a decision right there on the spot. And he looked at that deacon and he said, yes, I do. His dad was gloriously converted there. And he ended up being a missionary for many years in Rome, Italy. That's a question Jesus is asking you this morning. Do you believe this? You're not saved by osmosis. You're not saved because your parents were saved, your grandparents were saved, or you grew up in the church. You're not saved even because you were baptized or walked in the The only way you can be saved is that you believe this. Do you believe this today? Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Now that belief is not just some kind of intellectual assent. It's a commitment. He's demanding your life. That's the proof you believe it. Will you repent of your sins today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you will, no matter what you have committed, what sins you have done in your past or presently doing, your sins will be forgiven. And that's the hope that Jesus is giving here. It's the greatest consolation. Imagine when she's at the point of despair, Jesus preaches a sermon about Himself. Isn't that remarkable? She's at this moment of just crisis. And and Jesus directs the attention to Himself. Notice verse 27. She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe... That you are the Christ. That's the Messiah. That's the one Israel was hoping for, who would come and vindicate God's name by saving his people and, and judging his enemies. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God who is coming into the world. And yet she still does not believe that he's going to do anything with her brother at that moment. We see that from verse 39. Yet it's still a, a very amazing conversation. Jesus is consoling pain and offering comfort by diverting attention to himself. You know, there's nothing wrong with us as God's people taking meals to the sick. And I'm so, this is a church that does that so faithfully. There's nothing wrong and everything right about it. There's nothing wrong by being there to listen and to cry with people when they're hurting. But the greatest comfort a believer can have in their moment of crisis, the greatest consolation is to focus on Jesus. Many of you have visited Robert Kahneman of the last days, and, and I believe that the Lord is going to do something great and beautiful there. But he's had a significant surgery this week. And I walk into his hospital room and he's quoting hymns and large texts of Scripture and, and creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Why is he doing that? Because all of these things center on Jesus. And that's where he's finding his consolation. He's not looking at the statistics of how many people survive chemo or brain tumors. That's not his hope. His hope is Jesus. And Jesus is teaching us that. So we have seen Jesus' demonstration of his love by delay and by diverting attention to himself. But finally in this passage, we see him demonstrate his love by defeating death itself. Look with me in verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, Mary, saying in private, you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Maybe you have a footnote there, that word deeply moved. Literally indignant or outraged is a better way to translate this. Jesus was outraged. He was indignant. This is what the verb always means in the New Testament when it's applied to mere human beings. And the object of Jesus' outrage is death itself. Sorrow from death itself. Beyond this, Jesus' outrage shows that He is is entering into our world. He's entering into the human condition. He's experiencing, He's participating in our grief as our great high priest. Notice in verse 34, And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Why was he outraged? Why does Jesus weep? He is moments away from one of the most amazing miracles in the Bible. Remember the context. This is important. Jesus sees all of these people mourning and he recognizes this is not the way things were meant to be. He's outraged at death itself, it's an enemy. And we need to adopt the same stance towards death. Sometimes I have I've been to many funerals, conducted many funerals, and sometimes we over-spiritualize. Death is an enemy. And we weep at death. In fact, Christians should be the most mournful at death. Because we have a Christian worldview that recognizes that God created all things good. Death is not good. That's why we weep. But we also recognize, even though we weep more deeply than an unbeliever, we're also the most hopeful. Because we know, because of Jesus Christ, our very resurrection hope, we have a living hope. And that's what he's communicating there. Notice in verse 36. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, that's referring back to the sixth sign, also have kept this man from dying? The Jews were right and they were wrong in their perspective. Yes, Jesus loved Lazarus. And let me tell you something, he loves you just as much. He does. He loves you just as much, and He's not just some impotent friend. He's Lord, okay? He's he's the one who can raise the dead. When, When Jesus acts, things begin to hop, all right? And He loves you just as much as He loves Lazarus. And so they were right that He loved Lazarus. In fact, He loved Lazarus so much, He was willing to return to Judea where it was hot in the kitchen. He was willing to go back where they wanted to fry him. That's how much he loved Lazarus. But the crowds were wrong. The Jews were wrong here in the sense that they were wrongly interpreting his tears. They saw his tears as tears of impotence. This man is grieving, but there is nothing he can do about it. And yes, Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. We know that. But he could not have done it if he was going to do the Father's will and bring about a miracle that would more greatly display God's glory in Jesus. In other words, something greater is in mind than what we perceived should have happened. We believe he should have gotten there and And healed him before he died. Jesus has something much more glorious in mind. Verse 38. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Again, this word, deeply moved, should be translated outrage. We've seen the word twice. So he comes to the tomb as one sent by the Father, entering the human Condition, verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And now Jesus is going to pray. But Jesus reminds us in this prayer that He wants us to learn something from the prayer. That's why it's a public prayer. Notice verse 41. And Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me. That is so hopeful for us because He's our great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for believers today. And the Father always hears the Son. He always hears Him. But notice, He said, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that You sent Me. And so they, he, Jesus praised this publicly so that they can learn something about the nature Of the Godhead. The Father always hears the Son. Notice in verse 41b. I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you hear me. said this on account. And when he said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, come out. Literally, come forth. And the man who died came out. The old country preacher said, the reason he said, Lazarus, if he had just said, come out, every corpse in all the world would have come walking out of the tomb. Probably some truth to that. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him, And let him go. It's interesting here. The word dead man here. Right here in this particular passage. Is used to refer to another dead man. Same word. It's going to be used in chapter 19 verse 33. To refer to another man's death. Who do you think that is? Jesus' death. And so John is establishing a parallel by making these verbal connections. In the same language, Lazarus is a dead man, and in chapter 19, verse 33, you're going to see Jesus described in the same way. In fact, the way Lazarus' feet and hands were wrapped with uh, strips of linen is the same language that's used of Jesus when he was prepared for burial in John chapter 20. And so John, by writing this, giving this, is showing us that Lazarus' emergence from the tomb anticipates the empty tomb. Again, these are signed miracles. The focus remains not on Lazarus, but on Jesus. He's preparing us. All of these miracles are preparing us something of the nature of, of what Jesus will do for sinners. And crucial to this chapter is the role it plays in bringing Jesus to the cross. Now why do I say that? Because when Jesus heads south to Judea to raise Lazarus from the grave, that is the trip that places Him in Jerusalem on Passion Week. The week... That takes him to Golgotha. It's this trip. He knows that. And so the final sign miracle, resurrection from the grave, is pointing to the ultimate reality that he will accomplish in that same place. And what happens at Golgotha? Jesus dies and believers live. Just like Lazarus. In fact, that picture of Lazarus coming out of the tomb is a picture of our regeneration. where well, We're made alive in Christ. That's why Peter said, who was there? Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoiler faith, kept in heaven for. You. And so when Jesus raises Lazarus, it is a precursor to His much more profound resurrection. Because in that resurrection, He establishes, the Godhead establishes, the debt has been paid. The way has been made for sinners to reach their destination. The only destination that can lead to eternal human flourishing. He's made the way. There's only been one who was raised from the grave and remained alive. Lazarus would die again. Jesus remains alive. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's where He rules. He reigns. How does He rule? By His Spirit. He sends His Spirit to convict sinners of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that conviction you have on your heart today is a work of the Spirit. And he is saying, look to Jesus. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And everyone who comes to him will have their sins forgiven and will have eternal life. C.S. Lewis said, there is only one proper answer to the question, what is your destination? And this resurrection story shows us In living color.